Lexicon Valley is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording is killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 74, titled Snooze Fest, wherein we discuss the energetic history of the word sleep. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. You may have seen, Bob, if you read Slate, that we recently launched, we're calling it a, a pop-up blog. It's, I guess you'd say, a temporary blog. It's called The Drift, and it's all about sleep. So, for example, one of the inaugural pieces was a creed by Brian Lauder against the practice of spooning, cuddling in bed while, you know, nestled together like spoons. Mark Stern wrote a piece about his use of melatonin as a sleep aid. Rachel Gross wrote about insomnia. Josh Keating wrote about jet lag. There are a lot of great pieces just in the several weeks that it's been up, and there are more great pieces to come. Sleep is something we all do. It's something we all need to do. It's an intrinsically interesting subject. I thought we would do our small part and talk about the word sleep itself, about how even... <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. What you were saying? Even in the first century or two that we have citations for this word in the earliest written records, sleep already contains many of the shades, the nuances that it does today. By nuance, you mean sleep to mean something other than actual sleep, mm-hmm. um, sex or death mm-hmm. or I don't know inattention. Exactly, all of those things. So let's begin with a guy named Robert Cotton, who lived in England in the early 1600s, and he was an avid, avid collector of old books and manuscripts. He amassed what can only be described as no ordinary collection. Wait, did you say not an ordinary collection? Yes. Let me just take a tiny, tiny little tangent. I offer you a piece of tape from The Third Man. Uh, Dr. Winkle? Winkle, Dr. Winkle. Quite a collection of, uh, collection. Yes. I'm sorry, that's just one of my favorite moments in all of uh, film. Proceed. Okay, so to impress upon you, Bob, just how amazing this collection was, I'll tell you two things. One, it contained two of the four surviving copies from the year 1215 of the Magna Carta. Not bad, right? (laughs) Okay, not bad. And by the way, just one other tangent. The difference between uh, American museums, which are highly, highly curated, and the British Museum, at least when I saw this exhibit, there was a display case with the Magna Carta, hard by another display case with the original handwritten lyrics of I want to hold your hand. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. You know, a little less formalistic than... uh, we've come to expect over here. But once again, I digress. A personal collection, including a copy of the Magna Carta. That's top drawer. What else? Two copies of the Magna Carta and Beowulf. 
Needless to say, as you just sort of suggested, the entire collection, almost 1,500 manuscripts, I think, is now housed at the British Library. But back in the early 1600s, all of these manuscripts lived on a series of bookcases in a room in Robert Cotton's house. On top of each bookcase, about 15 or 20 of them, was a bust of a different Roman emperor. So there was Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, and so on. Actually, they weren't all Roman emperors. There was also Cleopatra and Faustina, so not technically emperors. This was Cotton's very creative, very innovative version of the Dewey Decimal System. So everything was cataloged first with a Roman emperor and then with a letter and a Roman numeral. Now, the very first item on the Vespasian bookshelf, Vespasian was a Roman emperor in the first century AD, the very first item, Vespasian A1, as it was cataloged, was a book of mostly psalms from the Bible. It contained a translation of the psalms from Latin into Old English. So you'd have a line of Latin and literally right above it what's called an interlineal gloss among people who use phrases like that was the more or less word-for-word translation in Old English. It was an illuminated manuscript, so it was very ornate in places. It was created by some unknown scribe in a church or abbey somewhere in South England in, as far as we can tell, about the year 750. So it's older than the Magna Carta, older than Beowulf, older than pretty much everything that Lennon and McCartney wrote. (laughs) So this manuscript is referred to now as the Vespasian Psalter. It has the distinction, I believe, of being the earliest existing translation of any part of the Bible into English. And it also happens to contain the earliest known citation of the word sleep. Hmm. What is the usage? What's the context? Well, before we get there, first we should mention that Old English is frequently unrecognizable to our modern English eyes. But the word for sleep looked back in the year 750 a lot like it does now. The spelling might change depending on the dialect of Old English. Also, Old English had a lot more declensions and conjugations than modern English, so the ending would change depending on how the word was used in a sentence. But it began with SL, then it had a vowel sound, either what we would think of as an E sound or an A sound. Then it had a P and maybe some ending. Which sounds a little Germanic, actually, because the modern word in German is... Schlafen, right, to sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and ultimately it's related. It is an Old English word that has equivalents in Dutch and Old Saxon and Middle and Low German, Gothic. So where in this Vespasian Psalter, this book, does the word sleep appear? Different Bibles number the Psalms in different ways. So this would be either Psalm 126 or 127, and it begins like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders work in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. It's in vain that you get up early and stay up late, eating the bread of hard toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. And that last line, for he gives sleep to his beloved, the Latin text that this 8th century scribe was working from read, Cum deterit delictus suis somnum. Cum deterit, mm-hmm. for he gives 
delictus suis to his beloved somnum sleep. And somnum serves as a prefix for a number of English words even today, including somnambulism. Take somnex tonight and sleep. Take somnex tonight and sleep. Safe and restful sleep. Sleep, sleep. Take somnex as directed for 100% safe sleep. And so this 8th century scribe translated somnum as simply sleep, spelled in this case S-L-E-P. And I'm not sure exactly how that would have been pronounced in the year 750, slep or sleep, presumably. But there it is, the oldest written example of the word sleep being used as a noun. God gives sleep to his beloved. It's a thing. It's an entity. As it turns out, Bob, our earliest known example of sleep as a verb is also from the Vespasian Psalter from a different psalm. (laughs) I've said now the the phrase Vespasian Psalter probably eight or nine times, and it occurs to me that if there is not, there should be a famous heavy metal band called Vespasian Psalter. (laughs) Doesn't it seem like there should be? There should be, or or a device for making locks with. Wait, L-O-X or L-O-C-K-S? L-O-X, some sort of curing container. Oh, I see. Do you like uh, belly locks or Nova? No, actually, I like the Vespasian. All right, maybe this is a good place for us to take a break. Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices. Music. Breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Okay, the earliest known example of sleep as a verb is also from the Vespasian Psalter, as I mentioned, and it occurs in Psalm 3. Why, O Lord, are they multiplied that afflict me? This is David speaking to the Lord. Many are they who rise up against me. Many say to my soul, there is no salvation for him in his God. But thou, O Lord, art my protector, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. I have cried to the Lord with my voice, and he hath heard me from his holy hill. I have slept and taken my rest, and I have risen up because the Lord hath protected me. In this case, the sleep, the kind of spiritual nourishment he gets that gives him the courage to do the Lord's work in spite of discomfort among the rabble. So the pertinent portion for us here is, I have slept and taken my rest, which is a little weird because it sounds like he's saying the same thing twice. I'm curious to hear what comes next, but, you know, I think it's worth noting that other passages throughout the Bible— And by the way, also in common law, 
have a tendency to restate essentially the same idea using synonyms, I guess, for emphasis. So laid down and rest being one, but evil and iniquity, let's just say, in another. Yeah, that's a good observation. So let's look again at the Latin version that this 8th century scribe was using as his source material. Ego dormivi et somnum coepi. So you see there are two words in Latin that both mean sleep. There's our friend somnum, again, and there's also the verb dormivi, D-O-R-M-I-V-I, which we would recognize also as a Latin root in English words like dormant and dormancy. And dormitory. And dormitory. So how does our 8th century scribe handle this redundancy, let's call it? Well, for somnum, he again chooses the word sleep, only this time he chooses a verb form of the word, S-L-E-P-A-N, slepan. So somnum coepi becomes slepan angon in Old English, I began to sleep, effectively. That's the earliest example of the word sleep being used as a verb. All right, that's the somnum variant. What does he do with the dormivi? What does he do with dormivi? You can't use sleep or slepan again, right? That would be bad form. It would be bad writing. So he translates dormivi into Old English, not using the word sleep, but a word that is a synonym that we still use in modern English. And this particular passage in the Vespasian Psalter is the earliest known example for this word, as well. And of course, you mean sawing Z's. <laughs> yes, exactly. Catching some Z's, actually, in this case, dates back <laughs> to 750 AD. Now, let's see if you can guess what that word is based on the way that word was spelled back in 750. All right. Bring it on. So if you look at the Vespasian Psalter, you see dormivi, and right above dormivi is a word spelled H N E A. P-P-A-D-E. And as this word evolved through Old and Middle English, it got shortened. I'll give you that hint. Give it to me again, please. H-N-E-A-P-P-A-D-E. Oh, they're soporific. In Middle English, the word got shortened to simply N-A-P-E. Oh, for heaven's sake. That's funny. Funny that it's as simple as nap, and funny that I should be so obtuse as to not see it earlier. I'll be darned. The earliest written example of the verb to nap can be found side by side with the earliest example of the verb to sleep in the Vespasian Psalter. And maybe, maybe the first literary reference in English to the concept of drooling on your pillow. (laughs) Drooling spelled... G-N-R-E-X-O-L-P-H-P-H-P-H-T-Y-D. The spelling was weird in Old English. It's weird now. It was weirder then. So we know from Shakespeare that sleep can be a metaphor for death. Sleep, perchance to dream. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. 
and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. And scene. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Volo. Yeah, we should probably mention that your dramatic rendition of the famed soliloquy from Hamlet is is especially meaningful to you because the idea dominates your thoughts every waking hour and many of your sleeping ones. Yes, I I may have mentioned on this podcast before. I don't know. I know I've certainly told you this, Bob, but when I was in ninth grade, we watched a film for sex ed class, and I was told that boys think about sex every 11 seconds. And I thought, oh my God, that's just like me, except with death. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And I can certainly testify for our listeners that Mike exaggerates not one bit. I spent a lot of time around this man and the dark emptiness of his destiny is never far from his thoughts. So as I hinted at earlier, sleep as death comes very early, far earlier than Shakespeare. There is an old English poem called Christ that dates to sometime in the 800s AD. This poem exists in three parts, Christ one, Christ two, and Christ three, that tell the story respectively of the advent of Christ, his ascension, and then the final judgment. Incidentally, earth is referred to in this poem as middengeared, which is Old English for middle enclosure. In a modern translation of the Christ poem, however, that word middengeared was translated as middle earth. And a man named J.R.R. Tolkien hmm. read that translation in the early 1900s and latched onto that phrase, middle earth. In any case, it is the poem Christ Three that concerns us. It is Judgment Day. The angels have descended. They are blowing their trumpets from the four corners of the earth to rouse the dead who must stand trial. Yeah, Christ Three, Christ One, and Christ Two were so much better. Christ Three, they just layered on all these special effects. It was, it yeah, Bruckheimer produced it. Michael Bay directed. It was just a disaster. Quote, they will awaken from the dead the children of the fellowship of man, all humankind, fearful from out of the ancient earth to their inexorable destiny. They will command them, they meaning the angels, them meaning the dead, they will command them at once to stand up from out of that heavy sleep. So there you have sleep being used for the first time that we know of as a kind of stand-in for death. And a different translation of this poem uses the phrase fixed sleep. We sometimes refer to death as the big sleep, right? Sleep is the thing that we do when alive that most closely resembles death. And so it makes sense that we would use one in place of the other, right? It makes less sense to me, on the other hand, that sleep became a natural stand-in for sex, no, what are you talking about, Mike? Because they have something very much in common, and that is the venue. Yes, sleep the bedroom. and sex both take place primarily 
in a bed. If you're doing and it primarily, wrong. primarily, you know, lying down, depending on your imagination and, you know, the state of your lower vertebrae. So why would you be surprised that they have become interchangeable? I think Jerry Seinfeld put it better than I could, so I'll let him speak for me. When we see each other now, we retire to our separate quarters. But sometimes when people get involved with that, they feel pressure to sleep over. When that is not really sleep. <laughs> sleep is separate from that. And I don't see why sleep got all tied up and connected with that. Okay, okay, rule number two, spending the night is optional. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll see your Jerry Seinfeld and I'll raise you one Cliff Robertson. This is from a early 60s movie with Jane Fonda, Robert Culp, and Cliff Robertson titled Sunday in New York. Tell me something, you, uh, you go out with any particular girl right now? Well, there are a couple of girls I go with, more often than others. A couple. That's right. Adam, what I am asking specifically is, have you slept with them? Either of them? No, I have not slept with them, either of them. And the setup is that Jane Fonda, the sister, is confronting her uh, brother, the uh, rakish airline pilot, Cliff Robertson, about his uh, sexual history. Oh, Adam, how could you? I, I never thought you'd lie to me about anything. I wasn't lying. You swore you didn't sleep with girls. That's a loophole. Sleeping. Oh, Adam. So sleep as sex. In the late 800s, Bob, King Alfred the Great was in power in what is now southern England. And one of the things he was great at, I suppose, was writing down a lot of laws. Many of these laws were biblically inspired. He compiled them into what we now call the Code of Alfred. It's a little dated, this code. For example, let him who has intercourse with cattle suffer death. I think, in fairness, in his original version, he wrote significant embarrassment. <laughs> but the publisher wasn't satisfied with that. Here is the law that concerns us. If anyone deceives an unwedded woman and sleeps with her, let him pay for her and have her afterwards as his wife. However, if the woman's father does not want to let her go, let him, the seducer, give money according to her dowry. So you see here, he uses the expression sleeps with her as a way to suggest mm -hmm. possibly something less than actual intercourse, but at the very least, some sort of sexual relationship. Hmm. Okay, let me leave you with one final tale about sleep that really illustrates how rich this word was right from the get-go. So in the 1860s, an English philologist named Oswald Cockaine published a three-volume set called, you ready for it, Leechdoms, Wartcunning, and Starcraft of Early England, being a collection of documents, for the most part never before printed, illustrating the history of science in this country before the Norman Conquest. So this was a collection of manuscripts from around the 900s AD of various medicinal remedies, right? Supposed therapeutic properties of plants and of barks and beetles and other such things. It's pretty much what you'd expect of medicine in the Middle Ages. So for example, 
quote, for knee pain, pound, and I know you have some knee pain issues, Bob, so you might want to pay attention here, pound together wood wax and hedge rife and put into ale. Have you tried that for your knees, Bob? No, because the uh, prescription for my leeches said that I can't use them while... Uh, Contraindicated? Using hedge rife, yeah. It's a drug interaction thing. If, on the other hand, Bob, it's your thigh that's giving you trouble, and more specifically, if it's gotten numb and, quote, paralyzed, then delve up the netherward part of sedge, boil it and water, make it reek on the limb that is helpless, and smear it with a salve made from swine's grease, sheep's grease, butter, ship tar, pepper, mastic, betel nut, sulfur, costmary, vinegar, oil, cucumber, radish, helenium, bishopwort, salt, ash, apple tree, oak, and thorn. What a great gig being a, you know, middle-aged pharmacist or whatever. <laughs> you can just make this shit up. <laughs> I have a pretty well-stocked pantry, but I got to tell you, my local co-op, I just can't get bishopwort. You know, you laugh, but this is essentially what this whole nutritional health aids industry is. It's all this stuff that, you know, may have some medicinal elements to it, but certainly not demonstrated by any kind of science to be useful. And people are putting all this shit in their bodies. And, you know, some percentage of them are getting no effect and others are winding up in the ER. So the leg here is described as both paralyzed and helpless. These are the words that Cockaine used when he translated this passage from Old English into 19th century, effectively modern English. But if you look at the original Old English, you'll find that both paralyzed and helpless are translations of the same word, the word sleep. Now, does this mean paralyzed as in my leg is asleep, that uh, I've cut off the blood flow to a nerve and it's all tingly? Mm-hmm, which is exactly how we use it today when we wake up having unwittingly used our arm as a pillow. So we have documentary evidence of the word sleep as far back as 750, and within just a century, a century and a half, really, we get sleep as death, sleep as sex, sleep as the lack of sensation in a body part. This word, I think because sleep is so fundamentally a part of who we are and what we do, this word has been imbued with all of these figurative meanings. And I wonder if it works that way, and maybe some of our listeners can tell us if it works that way in every language. It's hard for me to imagine a language that doesn't have a word for sleep. Yeah, I'd be particularly curious to know, Mike, whether native speakers of Mandarin or Finnish or German or what have you, to describe a relatively modern phenomenon of their consumer electronics going into a power-saving mode, whether they say in their native languages what we say here, which is sleeping. Yeah. In fact, what I would be interested to know is if you speak a language in which sleep is used figuratively in a way that we did not talk about here, in a way that's totally unexpected, or a way that you suspect might be unique to your language. So it's settled. We want to know about your smartphones. We want to know about your sex life. And it turns out we want to know about everything else. Please write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. All right, Mikey, we done here? 
wake up. Wake up. We got to do our thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we're done. All right. Later, Gator. Later, Gator.